As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome to Rates and Barrels, episode number 148, playoff episode number 6. It's Monday, October 5th, at least it will be by the time you hear this episode, most likely. On this episode, we're going to review... The Divisional Series matchups in the American League, those are going to get underway today. We'll take a look at the National League matchups as well. Those start on Tuesday, so two games on Monday, four games on Tuesday. Since we last spoke, the Marlins knocked off the Cubs to make it to this round. They will face the Braves. Brandon Kinsler complimented our fantasy football coverage in the post-game press conference, so that was a pretty cool shout-out. And I've devoured two pumpkin-spiced cream puffs from the Wisconsin State Fair drive through so a lot has happened. It's been a good couple of days in my world. Uh, how about you guys? How was your weekend? I hurt myself <laughs> badly. I, I hurt myself. I, I burned my finger. It's a gross, big blister. God, steaming is just a, is a terrible way to go. If you, I now feel very badly for lobsters. He was using the fryer at your state fair when he hurt himself. <laughs> <laughs> You know, was doing the hard work making those cream puffs. Um, I oh, did something fall-ish as well. We got a pumpkin today, and naturally, I thought we'd carve the pumpkin as a family. Uh, and then my husband was like, "No, you have to go get your own, and then we will see whose is better." Like, why is everything a competition? <laughs> <laughs> also, it's way too early. It'll be rotten by you know next midnight week next week. I know. <laughs> I know this from I know this from experience. Oh, gosh. <laughs> We've had to like we have to buy like three rounds of pumpkins in this house. <laughs> we just keep keep carving them all month. <laughs> I mean, but it was weird. There was no baseball all weekend, so you had to kind of entertain yourself, which was kind of weird. <laughs> I watched a little college football, which I didn't think I would really watch any until the Big Ten started back up, and that felt strange. There were some pretty big crowds. Uh, I think it was the Georgia. Auburn game where there were quite a few stands in the stands and something about that just looks weird because we're not used to seeing it this year but uh, all in all a good weekend and I'm glad we have baseball here on Monday let's talk about these matchups Astros A's which will be played at Dodger Stadium is the first one on our slate today first pitch 407 Eastern that's on TBS we're gonna help you find these games since they're on completely different channels than the games that we just watched last week uh, Lance McCullers Jr. goes against Chris Bassett in Game 1. It looks like Framber Valdez and Sean Manaya will be the starting pitching matchup for Game 2, which leads me to an immediate question. Is something up with Zach Greinke? He pitched Game 1 of the Wild Card Series against the Twins. He should be fully rested at this point. And Dusty Baker just announced the starters about an hour or so before we started recording on Sunday afternoon. So he didn't say anything about Greinke specifically. You know, what do you make of this? It seems very odd that he wouldn't start one of the first two games of this series. I tell you, it's one thing it's not. It's not because they're worried that Oakland would do well against Zach Greinke's sub-90 fastball. You know, I just took a quick query of slugging percentage against sub-90 mile an hour fastballs this year, did it by team, and Oakland was last. They had a 326 slugging. The league had a 466 slugging against balls like that. So um, is it an ace in the hole situation, maybe? Is it a, a tandem guy? Maybe he's going to come on the back end of Valdez, like Valdez came on the back end of him. Uh, is it a some sort of strategery? 
Um, or is was he hurt? I don't know. These, these are the things that I can think of. We saw Houston like do this weird stuff with the tandems, and you wonder, like, is Dusty Baker, who's been much maligned for his manager decisions in the postseason, is he now on the cutting edge of what we're doing here with these, like, you know, starters and then a, a piggyback reliever? Do they bring, like, you know, said, do they bring Zach Granke in because they don't have a bullpen? to finish off the last three, four innings. Uh, risky, crazy, but I don't know, maybe Dusty Baker would be a genius for it. And it's one thing that we thought, like, we kind of anticipated it in the three-game series, but it, it seems like not really viable for a five-game series because you, you can't really start guys, too many of the guys twice. I mean, are they hoping to start Lance McCullers twice? And other than that, and, and that creates an extra starter that like Javier or Urquidy that they just use as a tandem or Granky. I mean, it seems a little bit risky to kind of use this tandem dual starter national strategy in a five game series where you have no off days. That's, that's why it is uh, curious. I think. Yeah. I'm awaiting a clear explanation. I'm looking at the A's against lefties, a 93 WRC plus as a team. And that's down one of their right-handed hitters who would do a lot of damage potentially in Matt Chapman. So maybe they see throwing a lefty as the better way to go in game two. I guess I'm surprised they see McCullers as a better option than Grinky, though. I don't think it's a, a landslide, but I mean, what do you make of, of McCullers specifically? You know, do you trust him at this point as a guy that can go out there and give the Astros at least five quality innings? I think it's going to be really important because as Britt noted, this is not really a good or deep bullpen so if you're the A's you want to get into that bullpen as quickly as possible unless the A's are going to throw Javier or one of those other starters or Keedy out there right behind McCullers or Valdez you know one thing that's been interesting about McCullers as he's come back from surgery is that he didn't quite come with the same velocity they had uh, before before the surgery with the fastball it's not that uh that big of a deal it's not that obvious uh, but with the curveball, he used to be throwing 87s and 88s in 2018 on that curveball, which is just nutty, nutty. Um, and now he's more 83, 84. So that's, that seems like a, a, a pretty big difference in terms of how you would calculate a stuff number or, you know, what's important for a curveball is, is basically how much it drops and how fast it is. And so, um, you know, the curveball has not uh, been as good for him as it has been in the past. And, of course, he's built on velocity and that curveball, no command. The change-up's uh, not great. Um, so uh, one thing I can say is that he's looked good uh, the last couple times out, and those were his two hardest uh, or two of his three hardest um, curveballs of the year. So perhaps he's, he's feeling good right now, and they see something that uh, makes him a good, a good selection there. I also wonder, guys, with these best of five games with no off days, do teams kind of approach this as like a, a quick race to three and put even more emphasis on, hey, we need to go out and sweep because we don't have the stable of guys to get us through this. If we get to game five, it's going to get ugly. We're going to see Johnny Holstaff from maybe everyone, right? Mm -hmm. uh, we already saw it in a three-game wildcard series from teams. Right. So I wonder if you're Houston, you're like, listen, if – the, the best way to get to this series is to expose our bullpen the least amount of times. How we do that is we go right for the jugular and we just try to win all three games. And this is the best way to do it because the A's have a terrific bullpen. The A's won eight of 10, Matt. The A's dominated them in the regular season. They won eight of 10. Um, they hate each other. This is one of the many rivalry series that we have. And I wonder if they're like, listen, we're going to have to do things a little bit differently if we're going to go out and we're going to win three games because the longer this goes on, the more potentially favors the A's, even though their rotation isn't quite as good. We know they've got the arms, and we saw Liam Hendricks go 49 pitches and then hit 100 the next day. So the A's, to me, get scarier as you go deeper into this series. Whereas for Houston, I think they, you know, the, the absence of some of these starters that they've lost, a guy like Verlander, for example, it really starts to show up because you don't have those arms. I, I think that's a great argument for Greinke is a guy they bring on in one of these first two games, right? They, they're hoping for four innings from McCullers or, or Valdez. They're hoping for more. They're hoping for six or seven from one of them. But if they get four and they see something, Granky comes in. 
you know, and does the, the, the reverse validies that they did in the first, in the first one, you know? So I, that, I think that's, I think that's what I think I would agree with you. I think if they, they, they keep it close with one of these guys, then Granky's going to come in and they're going to say, we can always use Urquidy and Javier in games three and four, and then maybe get McCullers on short rest or, or actually I think it would be, no, it would be short rest. We would get McCullers on short rest for an inning, you know, and then do the whole staff because like you said, almost everybody in game five is going to have some sort of pitching problem. <laughs> like, you know, so I, I think they want to get out ahead of that. It's a good, good, really good point. Yeah, I think series flow ultimately sort of dictates the usage because it's only a one-day break. If the series goes five, it's one off day before the ALCS begins. Like Saturday would be the only off day, and you're going right at it on Sunday. So if you're going Johnny Holstaff at the end of a five-game series, you got one day to recover, you're going to have diminishing returns with your staff. It's going to catch up with you a bit more than it did coming out of the wildcard round. So I think a lot of people have concerns about the A's and maybe the Padres just based on how they had to get through their first series. I don't think you have to worry yet. I think you worry if they win that way again that it's going to carry over and be more of a problem in the next round. Uh, we've talked a lot about Chris Bassett. I think Alex Coffey had that piece at the end of last week. And a lot of similarities there to Lance Lynn, a guy that really turned things around a year ago and reached a new level. Really cool to see him getting that opportunity in Game 1. We've talked about Sean Manaya and the extension. Uh, I believe he and Frankie Montes both get a lot of extension, which is kind of interesting that the A's have two guys that are uh, front runners in that category. Uh, but Manaya, I think he's a quick exit sort of guy in the playoffs. I don't think you want him to go through the lineup a third time unless you're sitting on a pretty good-sized lead. I think it's two times to the order and get it to your excellent bullpen, and that's your best path to get a win. I don't think you want to see a right-handed heavy Houston lineup get a third look at a guy who doesn't bring premium velocity to the table. So to me, that's a key in this series is getting Sean Manaya through the lineup twice and then getting to a rested bullpen to take it the rest of the way for Oakland. And there's no there's no good tandem uh, for Manaya because, I mean, I think you'd want to kind of do lefty-righty to kind of play with the matchups and put them in the right moment if you're going to have a tandem starter. But Mike Fires pitched in Game 3, and otherwise you have Mike Miner and uh, Jesus Lazardo, so you have two lefties. I suppose Lazardo and Manaya are so different, you know, in terms of like 97 versus you know, like 89, <laughs> um, that maybe you could uh, still play there. But uh, I do kind of think that uh, the person coming after Manaya will be a reliever. If the A's were to be up a game in the series, if they were up 1-0, Manaya's pitching well, I think you'd have temptation to throw Montas in there as a follower. Oh, there it is. That's I knew I was missing a starter. That's it. Yeah. You try to go up 2-0 by going to Montas because like, he'd pitch like game four if you didn't use him as a reliever before that. Right. Then you go Lazardo followed by your bullpen. It puts a lot of pressure on Lazardo, but I get the sense they trust him. I know last time around against the White Sox, it wasn't a great start in the wild card round, but he's one of those guys that can be really efficient. He can go five plus when he's pitching well. And he can shut down a good lineup, and if he's so-so, but you could turn it over to the bullpen because you didn't burn through your short relievers in Game 2 if you paired Manaya with Montas. So definitely one of the more fascinating things we're going to see in this round is just how starting pitchers might be used in tandem, how bullpens are managed as a whole as teams try to get as much leverage as possible in these matchups. Let's get to the Yankees and Rays matchup. This is going to be at Petco Park. It's going to be weird to see those two teams playing in San Diego. Garrett Cole against Blake Snell in Game 1. That's an 8.07 Eastern first pitch. That's on TBS as well. As it stands right now, we're going to see Tyler Glasnow in Game 2, Charlie Morton in Game 3. I don't think the Yankees have shared their plans beyond Cole at this time, so we're still awaiting details as to what they want to do in games two and three. The Rays took eight of ten meetings in the regular season, but Britt, the first thing I would say when I bring that up is that wasn't a healthy Yankees team from start to finish, and they're actually very healthy right now. So this is a pretty different version of the Yankees lineup than the one we saw throughout July and August and September. Yeah, this is this is going to be a great series. I mean, you guys know there's so many good series here, but these two teams don't like each other. They're very vocal in that they don't like each other. They had a, a skirmish earlier in the season, for those who weren't really paying attention, which led to Kevin Cash's famous line about how he had a stable of guys who throw 98. 
which really should be on t-shirts somewhere. But you look at these Rays and Yankees and you've got power and power because the Yankees lineup, as you mentioned, is now a fully operational Death Star. It's, you know, everyone seems to be clicking. We saw what they did to the Indians. Uh, but the Rays aren't the Indians. The Rays are a much deeper, better pitching staff. And to me, what's fascinating is some of the guys who emerged, right? Like Peter Fairbanks. Does he, is he now a major player? Uh, because he isn't as well known, right? He didn't have any saves. Do they kind of throw that surprise element at this Yankees lineup? Because as we've seen so often, when you don't know a guy, you can ambush him. You know, Shane McClanahan, who's their number six prospect, is another interesting guy who could be on the ALDS roster, who the Yankees would really have no idea how to approach him. So we know the Rays are innovative. We know they they seem to always kind of be a step in front. And I'm curious to see how Kevin Cash manages these games because we know he's not afraid to use, you know, guys who haven't been in those positions before. So I'm curious to see who's on this roster reliever-wise and who isn't and how that pertains to specific guys. Will there be specific pitchers who are going to get out Stanton and Judge in the later innings? You know, that would not surprise me at all if we had personal pitchers attached to some of the Yankees' biggest bats simply to neutralize them. Yeah, you look at the the Rays as a team, and I think their biggest flaw is something that Eno might have brought up last week. They strike out quite a bit, 26.3% against right-handed pitching on the season, uh, third highest in MLB. It's the highest of any team left in the playoffs. And the other teams that were near them that made the playoffs, the White Sox, the Cubs, the Reds, and the Twins, they're all gone. Striking out's bad. Uh, <laughs> at least it can be very bad when you're facing someone like Garrett Cole, who pushes strikeouts himself, right? So I think about the Yankees and... My initial belief would be that with Cole going in game one, they have every intention of bringing him back if they need to in game five. So you're going to have to beat Garrett Cole twice uh, to possibly, or, or you're to, or with all the other three games without beating him, which puts a lot of pressure on the Rays trying to go that route since Cole arguably is still the best pitcher in baseball. I know Shane Bieber had an outstanding year and ran away with the AL Cy Young, but uh, that creates a, a really difficult path for the Rays in this series, even though they do have that great bullpen, they do have pitching that might be able to keep that Yankees offense relatively in check. Who scares you behind Cole, though? Like, their starting depth, like, Cole's great. They spent a ton of money on him. Their starting depth is one of their weaker spots, I think. And that might be exposed in a longer series. Yeah, you have to think that the Rays have seen Tanaka a million times, right? And part of part of Tanaka's brilliance in the playoffs, I think, if, the, if it is real, because people, you know, talk about his playoff record all the time if it is real it might be if you don't see Tanaka very often it's not they're not I mean I can't even think of another pitcher who throws like 70% sliders and 30% splitters you know I mean that's <laughs> it's an exaggeration but that's that's what Tanaka's like it's just like slider 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 splitter oh whoa that was a four seam you know what I mean so like uh I think that seeing him a lot would will help the raise um and and then after that you know Hap Montgomery, um, even Garcia, none of them really have great velocity. Um, and so you're depending on command and you're depending on a, on a wide variety of pitches. Um, and that I think sometimes can, can leave you behind. Um, so I, I, I agree with you on that one. I also, I think it's funny too, the bat, you know, when Lindsay Adler and I had, uh, did the preview for this series, um, we talked a little bit about that stable of horses thing in the, the 98 and how much they hate each other. And it was interesting to me to kind of think about the, the media and how that, their role in creating that as a situation. And because Pete Fairbanks, after one of his, um, Zoom sessions on the way out uh, at the end of something he said, he said like, um, you know, the, a stable, th- that stable thing that you guys ran with, um, <laughs> to the media. And, um, and I could see it happening. I mean, we're all in these zooms, right? And we're, we're all in these zooms and we're all picking over these zooms. <laughs> like we're all just like, just combing over the same, like none of us have anything different. We're all just putting together in different orders. You know what I mean? It's not been a great year for baseball writing. I'm sorry. I have to admit it <laughs> as a writer myself. And so I wonder if we're like all writing about the stable of forces and the, how much they hate each other just because it's something to write about. But at the same time, Kevin Kiermeyer said, you know, we don't like each other. And it was like plain as day. He just said it, you know, and if you're going to say it like that, we're going to write it, you know? So it's, I don't think it's necessarily all in the media. I think they do generally um, and genuinely not like each other. So that adds a little bit of spice to it. And the uh, last thing I wanted to say was about the Rays bullpen. I love the way it's put together. And it reminds me of the Baltimore bullpens that were so great. 
And the reason it reminds me of it is um, the Baltimore bullpens had all these weird looks. You had Darren O'Day, you had Michael Givens, you had these like, you know, Michael Givens throws sidearm, but has like a vertical hand slot. So the ball comes out straight. You know, then you have Darren O'Day who's throwing from his shoe tops. Uh, then you have Zach yeah. Britton who throws, uh, throws a, a, a sinker with a cutter grip, you know, and it's just yep. like the weirdest pitch you've ever seen that like one person hit a homer off it in like five years. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And then you have Brad Brock and he's got a very funky delivery as a right hand yeah. as well. Yeah. Do you, you remember some other guys that were, that were weird? Yeah, I mean, there were there were a whole stable of guys that were. That was a weird. Whole, <laughs> that was all they did. They couldn't. And this is why people are always like, "Well, starting rotations, you know, matter." You know, in the playoffs. Well, so do the bullpens, though, because the reason yeah. the Orioles even got there was because of those bullpens. So the, they uh, outperformed. Get, they outperformed what people thought of their teams all the time, right? It was like, people thought this is a mediocre Orioles team, and then they were in the postseason. You know. Yeah. No, you're right, though. There are a lot of similarities in that, like, none of them are like these huge names. Um, yeah. Right, or they certainly weren't at the time, and they were able to be used or you know deployed in a manner that they were successful. And I think Kevin Cash does a really good job with that. Too many managers are yeah. so obsessed with like can't go to the guy that we need in the seventh inning because he's our ninth inning guy, you know. And too many players get obsessed with that because you get paid to be a ninth inning guy, right? You don't get paid to be a seventh inning guy. It's it's a huge difference to have those I mean, numbers. To that point, you said Fairbanks didn't have a regular season saves. He got a save in the postseason because he uh, threw cash through Nick Anderson in the seventh against the middle of the lineup. Right. So here you are. Like I think, and I think it might, it could have something to do with the size of the market a little bit that you get a little bit more. Um, you're a little bit more ballsy or, or able to be more ballsy when, like, can you imagine like uh, the Mets like throwing when like Diaz was supposed to be their closer or the Yankees throwing Chapman in the seventh and then throwing somebody else in the ninth and then blowing the game. The ninth inning guy blows the game. Exactly. Oh my god! The radio stations and the can you imagine the back the post? Like, can you imagine the headlines? Oh my god! It'd be like Boone blows it. <laughs> Do you think Chapman would pitch? I feel like you could tell him to warm up, and he'd be like, "No," he'd be like walking <laughs> off the field. You know, they want to bring him in for the seventh. Yeah. <laughs> can you see like Boone being up there? Be like, you know, like no, bring in the lefty, bring in the lefty, and like, no, what? What? <laughs> and they're like, no, he's not coming. No. <laughs> he said no. Yeah. Pick someone else. <laughs> but uh, yeah, these, this young team, they, they've been brought up this way in the minor leagues, a, a lot of them, uh, to, to expect crazy shifts and expect crazy uh, pitching usage. They Also, when you go to the Rays, even if you weren't brought up in the Rays, you know this is how the Rays work. You know, like when you come to this team, like Charlie Morton has to know that like, there's a chance where he, he's like a tandem starter in the in the playoffs or something, you know, because he knows this is what the Rays do. You can't complain. Um, and there's very few people that come as free agents anyway. So <laughs> uh, it's usually someone who didn't have a choice, um, which is kind of like the dark underside of it. But uh, I, I, I find it really interesting that somebody who, who watches them said they were boring to watch. And I could see that because they, you don't have these – these stars, you have these all these mix and match guys uh, on the offensive end, and they and they don't have a left lasting in our consciousness to like be like, oh yeah, Joey Wendell's up, he has you know a, a large cat or something. That was Matt Duffy, but you know what I mean. Like we don't have like, these little vignettes or like we don't know about these players in the same way nationally. We don't really care about them. Like I think on the national consciousness, Kevin Kiermeyer is beautiful is about the closest you get to like knowing something about these players. <laughs> Kevin Kiermeyer is beautiful. <laughs> he is beautiful. Yeah, <laughs> it's the eyes. <laughs> the one thing uh, on the Yankee side that really struck me this weekend, I actually stumbled into this. I was doing a 2021 fantasy baseball draft already. Don't judge me. Uh, Jesus, Gary Sanchez what? has had a weird year, like a oh, really yeah. weird year. I don't know what to make of him offensively. This looks more like what we saw from him in 2018. There's still power when he connects. He still hits the ball hard, but the strikeout rate's high. It's just, I can't put this together. I, I can't figure out why Gary Sanchez hasn't become the player we expect him to be, why he's so inconsistent, and why his downside is this bad. What do you guys make of him at this point? Is he still a hitter that you should fear, or is he like Mike Zanino with a little more power? 
I don't know. Everyone hates on that guy. I feel like that guy gets like more hate than so many other Yankees, right? Like he, everything is like, oh, Gary Sanchez missed that ball. Oh, he's a terrible blocker. Oh, look at his new stance. Oh, he's responsible for this. You know, like there's some, any kind of issue in New York and somehow yeah. Gary Sanchez is responsible for it. So, um, you know, he had a big home run in the, in the postseason. Was that two run home run? Um, in one of those games, I feel like he's a guy who's never going to be what they expected, right? He's like Jabba Chamberlain or Phil Hughes. Oh, uh, he's never going to yeah. be. He's never. He gets so hyped up. You run these he's guys. Never going to be Jorge Posada. Yes. give it up. He's just never going to be that guy. <laughs> just like he's a different him. guy. Yeah, I don't. Yeah. <laughs> he gets so much hate that I would hate to just continue to bash on him. And would I draft him if I played fantasy? No, I don't think you can trust him at all. I couldn't trust him as far as I could throw him. And he's a big dude, so I'm not throwing him. He's far. a big dude. <laughs> so no. But I also just think the there were such unrealistic expectations of him. That it just reminds me of some of these Yankee prospects who have flamed out um, in that he's never going to be that guy that Yankees that they so badly want to embrace. He's just never going to be that guy. I mean, I think the main takeaway, though, for me is like he's their seventh or eighth best hitter. And when he's good, he's really good, even though. Yankees and it fans means a lot to them, you, right? Yeah. I mean, to get that when, contribution. When the eight hitter is that good. Yeah. Most eight hitters, especially catchers, can't do as much damage as Sanchez does when he does connect. And I'm sure a Yankee fan would spend an hour telling me all the terrible things that Gary Sanchez did this year. If I, <laughs> if I lent them an hour, but I don't know. I, I still think he's more good than bad, even though the numbers are horrible this year. That's my, that's my summary for Gary Sanchez. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Let's go over to the National League. Let's talk Marlins-Braves. It's uh, unclear who the Marlins are going to use in Game 1, though I would assume they follow the same order of the wildcard series where you're going to see uh, Sixto Sanchez take Game 2 since he took the clincher uh, on Friday. And plus, that gives him the appropriate amount of time to rest before taking the ball on Wednesday anyway. So, uh, looking at this Marlins team, familiar with the Braves. Braves took 6-10 meetings in the regular season, but... Again, the regular season for the Marlins was chaos. I mean, they were cycling players on and off the roster. They were dealing with the COVID outbreak. Uh, Max Freed's going to go for the Braves in Game 1. We've talked about the importance of Freed to this Braves team. How do you see things kind of shaking out early on in this series, you know? You know, I, I'm, I'm here to denigrate the Miami Marlins offense again and, um, and again pick against them. Because that's what I did before, and it worked so well. <laughs> um, and I did, I did want to point something out, though. I, I, I've got a piece coming out tomorrow, which about the unluckiest team that lost in the first round. And um, I'm sure that it'll be met with uh, sober. Um, no, no, I bet you some commenter will tell me I'm an idiot. Uh, but uh, uh, the the one thing that came out of it was I did uh, a nitro percentage, and and, and if you've been listening. Um, Nitro is just a, a actually a simple concept that balls that uh, are hit between zero and 40 degrees and over 90 miles an hour are generally good. And the reason I like it a little bit better than like barrels or some of the other ones is it's a large swath of balls in play. And so I think it, it could be more useful when you have a smaller sample. Um, and um, so, for example, uh, the Padres had the best nitro percentage in the first uh, first uh, series. They had they hit 51% of their balls in that group. And um, the major league average is like 35%. So that's way, way, way good. The Marlins were third with 42%. And like, I don't even know who did it. 
You know, I guess Aguilar had a homer. Um, Anderson's hitting, I guess. I like Dickerson? I I don't know. Garrett Cooper. Yeah. Yeah. Cooper hit a homer. Uh, th- maybe they're just gonna like put it together, and maybe you know Marte will have a miraculous recovery. I mean, it's a non-displaced fracture, uh, which I know I know a little bit about, having had a displaced fracture in my thumb. Um, that uh, he could he could come back. It's a kind of a pain threshold thing, I think. Um, so he he might be able to swing a bat at some point. But uh, with the way Ian Anderson looked, I feel like the Braves take games one and two, and then they have three shots at getting the third game. That's that's just how I see it. Yeah, I mean, I think the the biggest thing I've noticed about the Marlins compared to other teams in the playoffs, they don't have nearly the bullpen depth of most of the teams that are still here. And I think that puts a lot of pressure on Sandy Alcantara in Game 1. It puts a lot of pressure on Sixto Sanchez in Game 2. If you only have to go two or three relievers deep, sure, the Marlins can hang. You can get clean innings out of just about anybody for a small sample for a short five-game series. But if those guys struggle, if those starters don't go at least five innings, I think the Marlins lose those games because the Braves could score almost at will against good pitching. And I think the Marlins' first two starters are good. I think Pablo Lopez is pretty good, and I think they have a lot of problems in the pen depth-wise that will be exposed by this Atlanta lineup if they get to those relievers. Yeah, I mean, they're in over their skis, right? They lost 29-9 to to the Braves this year, and yes, it's different. Oof. Yes, the teams are different. But what one thing we didn't see last series from the Braves that you know is lurking is that offense, right? We didn't see like a... 10 run inning or, you know, them, them batting around. And part of that was the Reds pitching was so good. But part of that, I think, is you're just kind of, it's a sleeping giant. And I fear that the Marlins bullpen is going to be the one that kind of awakes that sleeping giant. Because like you said, Derek, their bullpen isn't that good. And unlike some of these teams that have these holes, you know, where they're kind of just, you know, the bullpen is a little shaky. They also don't have the offense. It's not like they have this star-studded offense that's going to score 10, 12 runs a game for them. Well, they don't. So I do unfortunately think this is the end of the road for the Marlins um, on on most hands when you look at the stats. On everything else, we know baseball's crazy. So if the Marlins stumble out and steal one of these first two games, um, I think they might give Atlanta some trouble. I, I, I think they might give them some fits. We know Freed pitched really well. We know Wright, and we know Wright is behind Anderson, and I don't tr- really trust him. So if the Braves run into a little starting pitching issues and you're using Darren O'Day in the fifth or sixth inning and you're using him for multiple innings, well, now you're going to start to tap into that Braves bullpen. And that's when the no days off comes into the equation. Um, I do think there's a scenario where the Marlins give them trouble and take it to five. I still think the Braves win. I think this is a great matchup for them, really, in all these major stats. Um, and it shapes up well for them. I just love the Marlins. I think it's a great story. And we never got to talk about them the last time because their game got rained out. And damn it, they deserve better from us. The bottom feeders deserve better from this <laughs> podcast. <laughs> You know, one thing that I think about when I think about these two teams is that familiarity in this case does not favor the Marlins. Um, You know, you have Sixto Sanchez, his first start uh, against the Braves, six strikeouts and six innings, no runs, great start. His second start against the Braves, four walks, two strikeouts, three innings, four runs. And, uh, you know, I even think about it on the fringes with a guy like Trevor Rogers, who's, uh, you know, a lefty with a really crazy... Uh, almost Devin Williams-esque uh, change-up, uh, not quite the same velocity or whatever, you know, that would be a great pitcher to, 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 to bring out if no one had seen him before. But he pitched four innings against the Braves um, September 21st. So they've even seen, like, their funky kind of uh, number four starter uh, that they could maybe use in a tandem. Like, even that guy won't be a surprise to them. So... Uh, I think in this case, uh, the the Braves bats having seen all these guys recently too, because you know Alcantara has been a little bit different since he went to the sinker. He's been a lot different since he went to the sinker over the four seamer, and Pablo Lopez has changed his pitching mix a lot. Uh, but you know, not so you know they they've done it. They've seen each other so recently. The Braves are like, oh yeah, I, we know about Alcantara sinker, and we know about Lopez, and uh, we've even seen Trevor Rogers. So I, yeah, I just I, I don't see I, I don't see a way that I can kind of reason this one through where I, I picked the Marlins. Of the teams still in the postseason, they have the longest odds of winning the World Series. Not a big surprise there. Shocker, right? But 
Um, I do think the key for them, if they're going to hang around, starting pitching has to come through. It's just not going to be uh, a 9-8 script over and over that favors the Marlins. They're not going to outslug Atlanta. They're not going to outslug other teams if they advance past this series. So it's a ton of pressure on this young rotation. We'll see if they can come through. Uh, but beyond Max Freed, it's Ian Anderson lined up for Game 2. Kyle Wright lined up for Game 3. I do think that's the slippery slope. I mean, if, if you guys wanted to say, like, what's the other part of the script? Like, if the Marlins just find a way to win Game 1, suddenly they have the advantage in terms of starting pitching in each of the next two games. Yep, I totally agree. Even if they split the first two, you know, I think things do flip on their head a little bit. But who's the fourth starter for the Marlins? Trevor Rogers, who's the fifth starter for the Marlins? I don't know. They, they wouldn't even tap into their fifth, right? They'd, they'd go back to Sandy Alcantara on short yeah. rest. They'd bring Sandy back, yeah. But um, I, I think if they can split the first two games, things change a little bit, yeah. That's a 208 Eastern first pitch on Fox Sports 1 on Tuesday for that game. So, yeah, double check your, uh, your cable guide. Make sure you actually have Fox Sports 1 before Tuesday if you want to watch that one. Let's talk about the Padres-Dodgers series. This is the all-barrels series. Dodgers and Padres, first and second in Major League Baseball in barrels per plate appearance. The Dodgers, number one, at 7.1%. The Padres, number two, at 6.8%. Dodgers took six out of ten regular season meetings. I think people are making a little too much of San Diego's approach in the wildcard round. I hinted at this before. Now, we're recording this without knowing the status of Mike Clevenger and Denelson Lamette. They're still being evaluated on a day-to-day basis. Clevenger threw a high-intensity bullpen on Sunday. We don't know how exactly he's come out of that. It probably doesn't matter how he feels right now as we're recording. It probably matters more how he feels uh, Monday once he's had a little time to recover from that. If they could just get one of those guys back, that would go a long way towards helping their chances, of course, in this series. So... I think the first question people are going to put out there is, can the Padres win this series without Clevenger and without Lamette? If they don't have either one of those guys, can they find a way to get it done, cobbling it together the way they did in the wild card round? Is that too far-fetched of a narrative, Britt? Ooh, um, probably, yes. They need, they need at least one of those guys, I think. Yeah. Both, absolutely not. Um, if both of them, neither of them come back, they're done. They barely got out of that three-game series. They had to use Johnny Holstaff, our old friend, and they were able to do well. But that doesn't happen again, and it certainly can't happen over a five-game series. So, obviously, they'd like both guys back, but I think it just one at least would help them at least round that rotation out. And then, of course, these other guys have to pitch better. They can't get what they got from Chris Paddock again. Uh, you know, you, you need to, they need to have these guys step up. Um, same thing with Zach Davies. Like they need to pitch deeper into these games because the Padres bullpen, um, has some holes, including their ninth inning guy, Trevor Rosenthal. So I think if you're the Padres, you really got to hope one of those guys are back. And guys, we talked about the Rays and the, and the Yankees hating each other. There is not great blood between the Dodgers Padres either. I mean, this is a great series. You forget this winner, Mookie Betts is the big sweepstakes was the, the Padres wanted him bad. They were going to s- ship Will Myers out to get him and the Dodgers end up getting him. So he's in their division. He hit a ton of home runs against them. They had several contentious plays at the plate this series. They had issues with Tatis's bat flip. Uh, you know, there were all sorts of, of, issues with these two teams they have quite a lot of drama you know you have kind of the the team that is supposed to be here and the Dodgers you know the big bad Dodgers who have been beating up on the Padres and the rest of the NL West for years and you have this young fun team fueled by Fernando Tatis and Manny Machado both guys who play very emotional play with that strut and that swagger and it rubs people the wrong way specifically the boys in blue so I think there's a lot of we talked about, you know, there could be brawls at really any of these series, maybe not the the Marlins Braves, but a wayward pitch here or there, you're going to see a lot of jawing. Aaron Boone said he was going to talk to the Yankees about that. I would imagine Jace Tigler has a similar conversation to his guys that like, listen, we're here to play and we're here to win games. Let's not do anything stupid, even though we hate these guys and we've been bullied by them. There's been a lot of chirping between these teams. I think there's a lot more drama here 
then people realize if you haven't been following the NL West, if you're like me and the games are on so late, you don't catch them that often. Uh, <laughs> I think I think there's a lot of bad blood here. And I'm really excited to see like a Tatis-Clayton Kershaw matchup. Or, you know, does Max, Max Muncie, who we know gets gets chippy? Like what happens with the Dodgers feel disrespected? Um, I think this could be a really, really good series, not just on the field, but with some of the the off-the-field chippiness that we may be able to hear because fans are still not allowed in. Yeah, but, you know, just without Lamette or Clevenger, uh, it, you just can't see them in a five-game series just piecing enough together. It would have to take... It would have to take like something really fun that could could happen, like Morihan or Patino or even a Gore call up, you know, Mackenzie Gore yeah. debuting against the Dodgers and like throwing seven scoreless or something. These are not impossible things. Derek wants Gore. <laughs> I'd love to see that. Yeah. <laughs> but um, at the same time, one thing is I don't get is that their treatment of Garrett Richards. I mean, Paddock has been blowing up and Richards has been pitching a little bit better. I think, but they 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 seem to be like just want Garrett Richards in, in short uh, bursts. They only want him as a reliever. Uh, I think I'd feel a lot better about having Richards penciled in as one of my starters. Um, you know, having uh, Clevenger and Lamette or no. Um, so I don't really understand that one so much, unless they just think that he's their guy for two innings in the middle of games, and they're going to use him two or three times, and he's going to have more value than four innings one time. So. Uh, it just seems like they don't really value um, Garrett Richards that much. And I think he's got great stuff. It's puzzling from 1,500 miles away. I mean, you look back early September, a great start against Oakland, seven innings, nine Ks. It, that was about the time they started to taper him off as a starter. Yeah, so, they announced he's going to be in the bullpen the rest of the year. You're like, what? Yeah. <laughs> Did you just see that? <laughs> so... If they did start him or use him as a follower, I think he's maxing out probably around four innings at this point. It's been a month since he's gone really deep into an actual start. So that's one drawback of the way they've handled him so far with those injuries they're dealing with. They may have to use Richards more than they want to. Uh, interesting, it was Craig Stammen who got the, the start in the elimination game on Friday, right? It was his first start since 2010 or 2011. It's like a decade since we last saw him take the ball in that role. Uh, but they pieced that together in a fascinating sort of way. And it really, we, we thought, we were messaging each other during the game, we thought Trevor Rosenthal was going to be coming on to protect a one-run lead late in this game. That looked like a very high probability ending. He pitched really well. The lead got bigger, of course. The Padres won by four. Uh, but he looked a lot better in game three than he did in game two of that series. I still worry about him as their last guy. Like I said this to you guys when we were watching game three, I actually trust Austin Adams more than I trust Trevor Rosenthal. I know Rosenthal's hitting triple digits, but the command is the thing that you just fear could disappear at any moment. Uh, so I think that's the other kind of monster in the closet, if you will, with the Padres is that the bullpen as deep as it is could still fail them at the absolute worst time. I hope for Trevor Rosenthal's sake, that he pitches well, it's a better story if he pitches well, right? It's a it's a terrible story and a sad story if he doesn't because this is a fun team. And for a guy that's turned it around, been acquired to be a part of this team, for him to let them down, that would be a total gut punch. If they do everything else right and they're in position to win this series and they don't win it because of Rosenthal, that's a backbreaker. Yeah. I mean, we talked about how if the Marlins steal one or two early, it changes the complexion of this series. Do you guys think if the Padres steal one or these first one of these first two, or even the first two, does it? Do we see the Dodgers start to panic here? Does it change the the way the series is, or way it could shake out for you guys? I mean, yeah, there's always the media questions then, and then uh, this this team, um, you know, if you're talking about like the A's and they haven't won in the postseason, I think a lot of current A's would be like, well, you know, what it wasn't me, <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, the old Shaggy line. Uh, but um, uh, it's uh, <laughs> but these Dodgers, I think they've been in these postseasons, and they, you know, Clayton Kershaw used to have to used to be like the Barry Bonds of pitching, where you know great, he's great in the regular season, but he's just terrible in the postseason. He's he's done some work to exercise those demons, but they're still there. 
I would say. And if he blows up in a start, in a start this postseason, um, he might start being like, oh, man, and then people around him a little bit. I, I, I think so. Th- this is my recipe for the upset is they win one without Lamette or Clevenger and then Lamette or Clevenger pitch. So that would be win one of the first two, Lamette pitches game three, they win that one. They've got two wins, and they just got to figure out how to scratch one through at the end. And when they went to their whole staff game, it wasn't anything like with the White Sox. I think they have more depth. Um, you're talking about Austin Adams. I think it's it's kind of fun to watch Austin Adams pitch because he threw 84% sliders this year. It's kind of fun to like kind of try and figure out when he's going to actually throw a fastball. You know, I think I think he had an at bat against Paul Goldschmidt where he's just slider, 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 slider. <laughs> you wonder if Goldschmidt is like still sitting fastball at any point. Um, but in any case, um, I think he also reminds me of Luke Gregerson, Padre Great who used to do the same thing. He was one of the first people to throw like 60% sliders. Uh, so here you have the modern version of Luke Gregerson with a slightly more velo and even more sliders. Uh, I think that makes a lot of sense uh, for for the Padres colors. But um, yeah, I think it's uh, steal one of the first games, win the Lamanner Clevenger game, and then um, and then just get into a brawl for the fifth game. And uh and uh, Austin Adams, you know, shut slams the door down on a big Dodger rally, and that's how the Padres squeak through. Yeah, I'm really excited for uh, this series. It's going to be the late night one. It begins uh, 9.38 on Tuesday night. It's uh, going to be time to send Brit some West Coast coffee or something to keep her up for those. <laughs> send me Eno's beer. It, well, that, that, see, that's the problem, though. Eno's beer, like, that'll, that'll tire everybody out, so... We got to play this one carefully, but uh, Fox Sports One has that game uh, on Tuesday. If you're looking to tune into that one, so we got to get predictions before we uh, get to a couple mailbag questions. Uh, so let's go real quick, series by series. We'll start with you, Britt. Astros, A's. Who comes out of that series? A's. What do you think? You know. Ooh, I thought they look kind of iffy. Um, this, so my picks are going to make people mad. <laughs> and uh but I'm I'm putting my analyst hat on. I, I admitted in our last show that um I was rooting for the Padres, but I'm putting my analyst hat on now and I'm I'm unbiased. Um so nice do you want me to just give all four picks or <laughs> we'll go one at a time. <laughs> one at a time. Okay. I'm gonna pick the Astros. I there's something about that starting pitching depth that covers that papers over their biggest uh hole that I think I think they can probably mix and match and win this with all their starters. I'm trying to reverse jinx the teams that I really don't want to see go through. Uh, but no, I, I, I do think the Astros are just better. They're, they're healthy right now. They've been there before. I know they haven't got much out of El Tuve this year. Uh, but a healthy Bregman, a healthy Springer, Kyle Tucker is emerging to be one of the key contributors to that offense. Uh, just, there's a lot to like about the offense in terms of how they put runs on the board, even if there's not a lot to like about this team specifically. They are clearly the villains of the league again. They're, they're back to that status. Uh, I think they come out on top in this series as well. I think it goes four, um, but I, I don't. I just don't think Oakland's going to get quite enough from its starting pitching. I hope they do, but uh, that's my biggest concern there. Uh, how about Yankees Rays? Which side of that one are you on, Britt? I okay, so I think the series goes five, no matter what. Um, I just think they're very evenly matched teams, and whoever gets punched in the mouth first is going to punch back. Uh, I'm going to go Rays. I think the Yankees are a really good team. There's no question about it. But I think if you're going to pit offensive firepower versus pitching in a longer series, eventually those bats are going to wear out. And I think you're going to see the Rays and just that depth of the bullpen give them the slight edge. I think Chapman might blow a game or have a shaky outing at some point in time. And Cole pitched so well in that last series. Can he Can he sustain that? Especially if they need him twice. I just don't really see that shaking out. I think... This is a great series, but I'm, I'm going to go raise in five. I'm taking the Yankees, and I'm taking it because of that strikeout rate nugget you mentioned. Uh, strikeout rate is more important in the postseason, or at least it has been um, in the past. And um, this year, every team that's advanced has had a lower strikeout rate than the team they uh, defeated, hmm. other than the Rays beating the Jays. Yeah. So that makes me a little uncomfortable. Um, but, um, you know, the Yankees can put together um, two and three run homers, whereas, you know, you're a little bit worried that the Rays will put together solo homers if you want to kind of 
if you want my like kind of summary of what might happen there. Um, so if you're if you're putting if you're putting up the two two to one three to one, if it's going to be like that, then you take the Yankees. If you're going to take be a, be a slugfest, I think you take the Yankees. So I'm taking the Yankees. I think it goes five, and I think the Yankees do win. I think it's Cole. I, I think that's the difference. If they had Severino also, then it would be maybe Yankees in four. I think it's going to be an awesome series, and maybe the reverse jinx is lurking in the <laughs> background here. I'd like to see the Rays get through. I'd, I'd rather see Rays and A's in the NLCS than Astros and Yankees. Uh, I'm not that lucky, as you all know from listening to my predictions to this point. Uh, on the NL side, Marlins, Braves. Who do you like there, Britt? Well, am I only on this podcast to disagree with you guys? <laughs> Two of you have agreed to <laughs> The two of you, did you guys confer before I got on to make sure your picks were on the line? <laughs> that was the pre-show meeting. This this one, though, I think we're going to be all on the same page. <laughs> Listen, it, it, Atlanta's a better team. Uh, are the Marlins a great story? Yes. Um, but Atlanta's the better team. And we, we did concoct a scenario where they can survive, certainly. Um, but that lineup, the at least the, the top end of the starting pitching, and then the bullpen is just better. So I don't really see how the Marlins, as magical as this ride has been, as much as Derek likes to point out that they've never lost a postseason series, I just don't see how that continues. I think the Don Mattingly magical ride ends here in, uh, where are they? Where are they even? Houston? Yeah, they're in Houston, I think. Yeah, I think it ends. Yep, they're at Minute Maid Park. Yeah, I think it ends here. It ends where it ended last year. You know who you got? Yeah, Braves. <laughs> <laughs> definitely Braves <laughs> mm. no really I don't know why maybe it's the Kinsler love I'm I'm feeling uh, the Marlins I just think God. they're going to get the they're going to get the starting pitching they need and we're all going to be like how the hell did they do this like that's the that's the feeling I get the Braves are better for all the reasons you guys mentioned I, I see that uh, I get that I'm picking the Marlins you're right Better team doesn't always win. Better team doesn't always win, right? I'm, I'm chalk on the AL side. There's going to be at least one surprise. It's Well, there's usually at least one surprise. I think the Marlins get the starting pitching they need, and Atlanta goes through another miserable offseason trying to figure out what they can do to make this roster better for 2021. So Marlins, I'm going to say actually in four. I don't know how they're going to wow. get that third win. But <laughs> right. they're going to find a way. I'm, right. I'm a believer at this point. Pablo Lopez. Pablo Lopez. Uh, Padres Dodgers. What do you think, Britt? I tell you what, you give one shout out to the Athletic Fantasy and Derek, it does not take much for Derek to get on board. I can be bought. <laughs> um, guys, this one's going to crush me because the Dodgers are the better team in like every facet almost, right? Um, but wouldn't it be so much fun if we got to see the Padres a little longer? Wouldn't it be really sad for everyone if we stopped watching Fernando Tatis? I mean, I don't know mm. about you guys, but I felt like outside of the pocket of diehard Cardinals fans, everyone else who was potentially on the fence was rooting for the Padres. Um, and so I really want the Padres to win. I think I'd feel a lot better if those two guys, as we talked about, were healthy. I think I would feel better about picking the Padres. I'm going to pick them anyway. I think this series goes five games. And the reason I'm going to pick them is I had a front row seat last year to the same exact scenario where everyone picked the Dodgers, where the Nationals had no shot, where it went to five games, and they had to play in L.A. in front of Dodgers fans. Dodgers were up early, and they still lost the game. I think you can't trust Kenley Jansen. I think Dave Roberts is on the hot seat for every move he makes. And I think if they lose badly or make a few bullpen blunders early on in the series, then they're going to get real tight in Game 5, and the Padres are the king of the comebacks. They have no pressure on them at all. They're going to be playing free and fun, and I think there's a chance for them to steal this. I really do. I'm going Dodgers. <laughs> I, my heart, my heart says Padres. He nods but, with me, uh, and then every time is like, no. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, my heart says Padres, my brain says Dodgers. So we'll see. One, one's going to be right. I'm not sticking with my Marlins prediction. I'm actually on the Braves with you guys. By the way, I can't do it. I tried. I tried to be contrarian, and I can't even take it mm. seriously. I'm sitting here, and I'm like. That's not going to happen, especially in four games, you idiot. The Braves are going to score like seven runs a game, and they're going to roll. Uh, I will join Britt on this one, though. I will take the Padres as well. I do think there's a lot of pressure on the Dodgers. One thing that's really interesting, too, if you look at the K-BB percentages for the rotations, for the bullpens, the pitchers are closer 
than you would think between these teams. The Dodgers pitching staff is better. It has a little more high-end talent. It has a little more experience. But the gap between these two teams in that facet is not as wide as people think it is. I have some faith that Zach Davies, who was often going five-plus throughout the season, can at least go five. He's not going to go short and burn them. I do think one of Clevenger or Lamette's going to get a start in the series. That goes a long way towards giving the boost. Uh, and I do like the bullpen depth they have. I love the energy of this team. I think all of the pressure is on the Dodgers, and that's a bad thing for them. So I will take the Padres. I think it goes five. I think it's going to be a fantastic series. And actually, I think this is going to be a really good round across the board. I think we've been gifted with uh, four divisional series matchups where in-division opponents are squaring off. It's going to bring the energy up another level. Uh, a couple quick things before we go. We got a, a mailbag question from Jenny. Uh, she wants to know, do you think there are guys whose 2020 performance has been affected either positively or negatively by the lack of fans? I heard on a recent Cubs broadcast that you Darvish has really liked not having fans in the stands this year because he's been able to relax and focus. I'm sure there are other guys who thrive on the energy that the fans bring. Uh, interesting to bring this up now because there are no fans in this round, but we will have fans for the games played in Texas after this round. So that's the ALCS series and then the, the World Series, I believe. So have you guys heard anything in Zoom calls or from players reaching out to you directly who've said, oh yeah, we actually like the atmosphere of, of the quiet or we actually hate this because we're not feeding off of the energy of the crowd the way we normally would. Like The vibe I get is that more players dislike it than like it because it, it's just weird to play in a big empty stadium. Uh, but who have you guys heard from on this topic? We'll start with you, Britt. Yeah, the Nationals complained all year about not having a crowd. And I think for them, obviously, it's twofold. They won the World Series last year. So they were expecting to have crazy crowds and be applauded and feted at every step of the way. They didn't have that. And there were guys that, like Adam Eaton, who, you know, kind of said, and, and Ryan Zimmerman before he opted out, how much they relied on Sean Doolittle, uh, the energy of a crowd during a mundane game when you're getting beat or it's 120 degrees out. Um, I think the only way as a player you enjoy it um, is if you're struggling. If you're Trevor Rosenthal of last year and you have the yips and you're getting booed off the field, I think then you wish nobody was there. I think then you wish no one was watching either at home. But I think most of these big league guys, especially the relievers, um, late innings, the hitters, they, they feed off that crowd, off that energy. I certainly think the Padres do. Uh, I think the louder you play, the more emotional you play, the more you need that energy. And so I haven't heard a player say, hey, I'm cool with the, the quietness publicly at all. Uh, have you, Eno? No, no. And, you know, I remember Kevin Cash said before the series, um, this last series that, you know, yeah, we'll have some sort of home field advantage, but we'd have a way more of a home field advantage if we had fans, you know. Um, and I do think that uh, most hitters would prefer uh, fans. I could see maybe pitchers um, saying, you know, like, uh, you know, I, I, I don't want to be you know, yelled at in the middle of my start. You know, I want to be thinking I'm dictating the game. I, I want to be able to just sort of think about, you know, what I want to do next and stuff and not have people, um, you know, basically heckling me. Um, but at the same time, you know, most of these guys say that like once they're between the lines, I, I did talk to like Jed Lowry about this in the off season. Like, you know, when this was, when we were shut down, he said once we're between the lines and the, and the, and the stats count, you know, I'm going to be locked in. You know, I'm going to want to win. And um, I do think that that is enough for some people most of the time. But just watching as a fan, man, it has been bizarre. I, like a regular season game without fans. Like I, I've covered a lot of games in Oakland. There are regular season games without fans all the time. You know, <laughs> so like, you know, a regular season game without that much fan noise is fine. Now in October, you're so accustomed to hearing just the roar, you know, and just like the, the highlights are supposed to have this, like, the, they're supposed to be imbued with so much emotion because, because of the fans. So, uh, that has been bizarre for me watching the postseason. Like, it's been, I had to get, kind of reacquaint myself with, um, postseason baseball, I felt like. And I think a lot of players are having to do that too. Uh, a couple other things we want to get to real quick. We got some feedback from listeners about how to improve broadcasts of games. We were complaining a little bit about A-Rod. We didn't get 
all the way into the rabbit hole. Uh, one suggestion from uh, at BB underscore MDN uh, was a suggestion to just have the team's local broadcasters on the calls, which is one of those things like if your team makes it to the playoffs, you want your local booth nine times out of ten. Most people like their local crew enough to prefer them to the national crew. But the one thing I would point out too, the TBS teams are a lot better than the ones that were on for most of the wild card series. Like I, I just think that that roster of, of people that you only really hear in October is deep enough for eight to ten teams in the playoffs, but it's not deep enough right now as constructed to get through a 16-team postseason. And then it also, uh, the lack of fans ties into this. I think you know, when you think of a lot of the largest moments and you think of what the announcer was doing, a lot of times they let the game breathe. They just, they, they're quiet and the fans provide the backdrop. And that allows you to kind of understand the gravitas of the moment because the, even the announcer is not speaking. But in this situation, and a lot of people are killing, um, you know, Sutcliffe and, and A-Rod and some of the other announcers for talking too much or telling a story that seems irrelevant to what's going on in the field. But that's exactly when they might be able to let the crowd breathe and be quiet for a second. And, uh, you know, they, and they, they aren't able to do that in today's game. So, um, yeah, I, I, I think this is a group that's cut above. I think, uh, Boog and Chipper have been, uh, were the best of the first round. Um, and there's a lot of flawed, uh, guys after that. I think the local announcers thing would be great. I think that there's a practical sort of business reason that doesn't happen. It has to do with rights holders and how they function. And so, you know, you have basically an ESPN stable of announcers. So if ESPN has these games, you're going to probably use ESPN announcers, um, rather than maybe, uh, pay, a double, like you probably already paid those, those people a salary. Then, then you're going to bring somebody else in. You have to pay double basically if you bring the locals in. So, um, I think that's the sort of practical business aspect of it. But I think from a, a fandom, like who knows the team better? Who knows the Padres better than, uh, than, you know, the Padres announcers. And maybe you could do something where you, you have a three man booth and you have one from each team or something. So, uh, there's different things you could do to bring the locals in. Um, and they usually know more about the team and there's been a, f- there are people who are fans of the teams are often fans of their local announcers as well in a way. So, uh, yeah, I think it would have been great to have the Padres on there locally. And I got killed for saying, uh, Sutcliffe and, um, Hart were better than uh, Vasgersian and, and A-Rod, but I had to explain myself. I think A-Rod was the worst announcer in the playoffs this year. So a show killer brings down a good play by play guy or girl. Yeah, I just I know what you said with the money stuff, and I agree with all that. I just don't know why they can't pay like a Don Orsillo with the Padres just to do color, just provide color, tell yeah. stories about these guys. Um, I think especially right. in a sixty game season with limited access, what we're really missing um, a lot of the time is the color. And somebody else commented, which is also a great idea, like explain, get more into the stats and the stat cast, explain it a little bit more. Um, it seems like a lot of these broadcasters are not comfortable with some of the advanced stats. And if they could get somebody in there who could, you know, dumb it down for the rest of us, who could help me understand this and apply it and get more people interested in that. Um, it's just a different way to view the game. And I know we were talking off air about the ESPN plus that does this. And I'm wondering why they can't add a, a stats guy to the broadcast as well, especially this year when it was a great point you made, you know, about they can't let the game breathe with the dead air. Um, because once we talked about that a few days ago, I really noticed that there is no dead time because there is no atmosphere. Mm-hmm. And why can't they yeah. use that time to have somebody talk about, you know, how, how, you know, how WOBA uh, factors into things or explain what war means to the casual fan who doesn't have an idea. Um, I think that would really help. And I think those color stories, right? You hear about a guy who went through all these crazy obstacles and all of a sudden the guy you thought was a bum pitching on the mound, like you're kind of pulling for him. So to me, those are the main things that get missed. I think I think a lot of the announcers talk to people and coaches and then they so badly want to relay what they what they did. Like, oh, so-and-so told me this, whether it's applicable to the game or not. And it just feels forced in there a lot. Instead of telling me what the Braves are doing on the field, don't tell me what Rick Kranitz, the Braves pitching coach, told you before the game. Well, we're in the fifth inning now and maybe that doesn't matter anymore. Um, I think there's a lot of that showy, I did my homework in broadcasts and less of the let's react to the game right a rod's main strength is that he played the game we didn't play he played at a level no one else did so you 
you tell me as a player what that means. Don't tell me that you talk to Derek Jeter or throw Buck Showalter's name around. Like, I don't care. Um, tell me as a player, <laughs> you know, how, how, how much it must hurt right now to swing full throttle, how much your whole body aches in October. Those are things he can bring that I don't think he does enough. You didn't find his story about uh, meeting Elton, Elton John, John and finding out how much of a Braves fan Elton John is relatable? <laughs> I had that on mute. I was listening to the radio broadcast for a lot of these. I also missed some moto discussion. Um, I, I enjoy the local radio announcers because they just know the, the, the dirt. They know the details. They know what's going on. So I muted yeah. a lot and listen to the radio. I think that's the hard part, though. If you take A-Rod and you parachute him in for teams that he hasn't spent a lot of time watching this season and you expect him to know the team inside and out, you're probably asking too much. While the broadcasters are watching him every day, he's shooting episodes of Shark Tank and doing other stuff. And that's that's a disservice to all of us. It's, look, that's his choice. Like He can do that. That's the gig. Someone's paying him to do it. But that's part of why it turns out the way it does. He's not doing the job every single day throughout the season. And there are a lot of people who are really good who do, who are getting passed over for those opportunities. So I find that to be pretty frustrating. But that was Oliver's uh, suggestion to do more with StatCast, more NerdCast. I'm all for it. Even if I knew the stuff they were talking about already, I'd rather hear NerdCast 101 a hundred times over and over than hear the same old tired cliches from guys that played the game before. If you're enjoying the show on a platform, that allows you to rate and review the podcast. Please take a moment to do that. It means a lot to us if you're still listening. So hit the five stars for us. We really appreciate that. If you're not a subscriber to The Athletic, $1 a month gets you everything that we're talking about, like Brit's articles, Eno's articles about the Rays, league-wide coverage, fantasy stuff. $1 a month, theathletic.com slash rates and barrels. You can email us, rates and barrels at theathletic.com. On Twitter, she's at Brit underscore Giroli. He's at Eno Saris, and I am at Derek Van Riper. That is going to wrap things up for this episode of Rates and Barrels. We are back with you on Tuesday. Thanks for listening.